They don't, you have to show vaccination, but you don't have to show a test result, which is great. I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. Has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle-class job in my town to Russia? With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long and Peter Robinson. I'm James Lilix, and today we talk to Eli Lake about what else? Ukraine. Let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. It's the Ricochet Podcast, number 582. Join us at ricochet.com, won't you? Why? Because then you can listen in order to all 581 <laughs> episodes that preceded this one. You need something to do while you're buttering around the house, right? I'm James Lilacs here in Minneapolis, home to a not insubstantial community. Peter Robinson is in sunny California. Rob Long, bouncing around the world as usual, looks like you're in New York at Rainy the New York. moment. In New York. Here we are. Here we are. War in Europe. And um, yeah, I'm again it. Peter, Rob. <laughs> well, you kind of have to say that now, don't you? You kind of have to make it clear that you're you're not in favor of this. Um, right. it, it does. I mean, I don't know. Like uh, we were just talking before. I don't know whether we want to get into it now. We want to have a good guest here who knows a lot about this stuff. Um, it 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 does have echo. I mean, more echoes of 1939 than ever. But oh, I think I that's a trap. I'm glad you raised that point. Okay, yeah. hold on. Go ahead. Go ahead. But I think it's a trap. You know, it's a trap to see it all that way. Um, here's what I, here's what I, I do a little psychoanalysis and I'm going to do a little bit of, um, 50,000 foot view. The, the psychoanalysis of the Russian mind has been that they have complained about encirclement since Queen Victoria. Mm-hmm. Longer than that, yeah, but, but that ahead. is really where the great game started between Russia and the West. You're all around us. We don't like the fact that you're all around us. You can take, yeah, and then when, when the, their air bases, you can take, uh, um, uh, you can make use of air bases in Turkey and in Japan and in uh, Finland, not Finland, but Scandinavia and um, Germany, and you encircle us all around. And the argument uh, in the Soviet Union was make peace with India, make inroads with India. Pakistan was going to be a U.S. ally, but they so India tilted to the second world. Um, that all changed. But the only people using encirclement, really, and only people who've ever used encirclement as an actual strategy are the Russians. If you look at the arrows of how they are entering Ukraine, they're entering from the mm-hmm. east, from the water, from Crimea, which they can, they took over in 20 something, 14, 12? 2014. Yeah, 14. No, no, 2018. And then from the north, Uh, And even from the south, I think, is coming. The only people doing the the only people encircling anybody are the Russians. It's 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 classic Freudian projection, right? You ascribe mm-hmm. to your enemy the the very strategy that you do, and then I, the, my final theory here is, um, which I'll, I I will uh, I will then fall silent while Peter tells me either I'm right or I'm wrong. Is that this the reason that we are here today? Is because communism sucks. <laughs> communism <laughs> is a disaster. It destroyed Russia. Yes. They never recovered from it. Russians have had 20 minutes of some kind of vague democracy. But basically, they went from czars 
to communist dictators, to autocrats. Uh, communism destroyed them, gave them a false sense of confidence, which is what, by the way, I saw this in Cuba too. And they are now a nation that is acting in shame, which is what Putin is trying to do, reclaim Russian pride, Russian strength, which, by the way, they never had. It's just that these crackpot philosophers, Marx and Engels and Lenin and Stalin, convinced them they had it because they had nukes. They were right. never a great power. And uh, now we all have to pay the price because communism sucks. The encirclement thing is amusing, too. It's a, you know, here we, we are a country that spans 10, 12 zones and you guys are all around us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right, That's kind of right. how it works. And I, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to be like Bugs Bunny and get out a big saw and carve off Europe? And so it floats away so that there's an estuary between us and you. We don't, I mean, yes, we're going to encircle you, but we're not out for anything that you have. I mean, we're not out to conquer you. We don't care. No one's I mean, the idea somehow. I, I, when you brought this up, Rob, I, I, I keep thinking the, the standard Russian psyche seems to be we are a great power. We are great people. We are a great civilization. And we are also the biggest whiners on the planet. I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of, I think that's really good. I think that's true. I mean, yeah. the, 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 I, in, I mean, Peter will vouch for this because I think he probably knew more of these people than I did because he had to fight them every day. But the Soviet appeasers of the 60s, but definitely the 70s and 80s would say with like you know, the John Kerry's of the, that era would say, um, you know, we we have encircled them. Put yourself right. in their shoes. Right. Put yourself right. in their shoes. Uh, and the truth is that we had, we didn't, and we weren't, and that was never a case. They were invaded by the by Napoleon and Hitler. Napoleon, they were kind of blameless. Hitler, they you know they made a deal with Hitler. They thought it would last, and it didn't. Um, they did exactly what Neville Chamberlain did, but he was buying time. Uh, so. Uh, historically, this is, I think this is all fascinating because it, it, it spans um, at least I, my, by my def, by my count, one, two, three, four, five, six presidential administrations since the fall of the Soviet Union, which, by the way, was caused in no small part by Peter Robinson, whose hmm. incendiary speech led to this incredible instability in Europe. And now here we are. So you're welcome. Thank you, Peter. For creating, uh, it's all my fault. Yeah. So take issue with all of all, that. All I can do, no, no, no. All I can do is riff. All I can do is riff. We have a guest on who actually knows something. And by the way, one, we don't want to start attacking journalism again because we're too good at it, and it's just too. Easy. So we set that aside. But I've been frustrated in these last forty-eight hours just to find. Good reporting, yep. not on what it means for the West. And the, 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 no, what does Putin, is he crazy? No, on the military situation. Maps. The maps, mm -hmm. the TikToks, the explainers. Preach. If you were, if, where's, the, where's the colonel saying, even the colonel on Fox News, I thought, didn't have the slightest idea what he was talking about. How long can the, how, how do you feed people? How are the Russians feeding their troops? How are they keeping up the supply lines? Where's the gas coming from? All these questions that I remember from the Second World War, do they even apply now? Are they going to be able to take, key, they don't seem to be mounting a vast land invade. Okay, so we'll ask, I, I intend to ask all those questions of our guest. But all I can get to, uh, I keep thinking, history History, the small point, but it's not nothing. You mentioned 1939. I'm not drawing any lessons from this. I'm just mm -hmm. saying, mm -hmm. 
Oh, wait a moment. This is what it was like on September 1st, 1939, when the Nazis went into Poland. Totally unexpected. Dive bombing. Refugees streaming toward the interior right. of Poland, streaming to the east, shocked in the west. Of course, it was much, much worse. But this, for the first time in our lifetimes, we're seeing on Twitter and TikTok and YouTube, we're seeing streams of refugees, children screaming as bombs fall from the sky. This is a minor event by comparison with 1939, but it explains, I, I feel for the first time, I really feel what it must have been like for our parents' and grandparents' generation when this war broke out, or, of course, if you can project from the, the visceral shot, I always honestly have been a little puzzled because Pearl Harbor was so far away. Hawaii is a long way away now, but it, Hawaii was a, a million miles away from the eastern population of the United States. But I feel I can understand the shock now. All right, that's the first thing. And here's the second thing. Russians, as best I understand the history, Russians are Scandinavian, they, they're Vikings who come down the rivers and settle in Kiev. And here's their problem. They occupy essentially a vast defenseless plain. And for 1,500 years, it's worked its way into the psychology of Russians. They're over there, they're over there, they're over there. We are encircled. The Golden Horde, we, you were talking about Napoleon. It goes back a thousand years before Napoleon, when, when, when the Khan uh, surrounded the Kievan Rus and made them sp spend several centuries paying tribute. So you get this Russian, what Russians do, what they know how to do is to be afraid of encirclement. And then bit by bit by bit, they push out, they conquer, and they really and truly are convinced that this is defense. And wait a minute, if you push this far, there's still a vast plain in front of you. They could sweep across that plain and attack you again. You've got to push farther. You've got to push farther. So we have Catherine the Great conquering the Crimea. She establishes a naval port in Crimea in 1783. And then it's the great accomplishment of the 19th century czars that they reach all the way to the Pacific and they establish a naval port at Port Arthur. And then the Japanese encircle them. <laughs> the Japanese fight back. Japanese, I mean, Japanese actually kicked their butt in 1911. I mean, they kicked the their butt. That's the exactly. the twilight of the czars. Yeah. So what you've got is this is this these people who every bit of their history is we are encircled. Yes, 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 we're getting bigger and bigger, but we have to, to defend this sense. And from their point of view, it does make a certain sense. But what I just, what I'm so struck by, what was it that Faulkner said in his Nobel Prize address? His, the, history isn't, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past. Right. And here you have Vladimir Putin, this crazy but, sh but cunning little man, behaving as Russian rulers have behaved for a thousand years. It's all, it seems as yeah, though there's no escape. I, the, yeah, I think that just that there are only, there's always tricks to these, these, these um, rivers of history, right? One is that, oh, sure. One is that, it, I mean, it made a kind of a sense. It wasn't just expansion. It made sense that the Soviet Union, this nascent communist republic or whatever, dictatorship in the middle of the 20th century, just starting 
uh, wh- where you had all of the great powers had amassed uh, armies on the continent of Europe. And many of them wanted to keep going from Berlin all the way up to Moscow. Right. It made sense to create a buffer. I mean, in a weird way, that I don't think that was delusional on their part. I think that was actually made sense. Um, and then you have this, but you basically have this economic basket case, a country of really right. no account. GDP, I think, is um, Belgium. Belgium, but you know, small, small, for size, smaller than Mexico. Um, this uh, oligarchical uh, economy, great disparities, no real growth, no real technology, nothing except nukes. Right. And the nukes change everything. And they the sure nukes do. mean that there was never, <laughs> it was never, we we're never going to send troops to Ukraine. That was, it's never going to happen. Um, it's always going to be Ukraine is now a proxy war. Um, it's the, maybe the new Vietnam. It's the new, if he stays there, new Afghanistan. Um, and th- this was inevitable. And this is a crisis that he, but he feels he needs to um, initiate and has been working towards it faster or slower since 2008 or 2007. Right. Um, and we've been told we've, we've been told that our inability to understand their fear of encirclement and the rest of it is one of the reasons that he's done this and that uh, the integration of Ukraine with the West is threatening to him. Um, and yeah, I can see people making that point, but you rarely hear anybody making the other point, which is that Ukraine uh, feels a certain animus and suspicion toward Russia. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. yeah right and, and so it's why the if, russians if, have to invade right so if you're if you're going to grant the legitimacy of the russian claim go ahead and do so uh, understand that on the other side they too have an opinion about russians and their expansionist techniques Correct. and the fact that they would like to preserve themselves and their culture their language and their history etc from them and see means to do so which means tighter integration perhaps with the people who aren't going to invade them and aren't going to trump up some stuff about the uh, nazi resurgence so so yeah I mean, but I yeah, mean, you know, the, the history of it is sort of interesting because uh, uh, George H.W. Bush at the fall of the Soviet Union went to Kiev, Kiev, I'm sorry, excuse me, Kiev, Kiev, as we're now and Kiev, Cutter, where did that come from? Gutter, um, chicken, chicken, yeah, Kiev. and he mm, and right. uh, he gave a speech. He basically said, you know, uh, NATO will not be expand. NATO is not going to expand um, uh, national. I mean, these countries need have national identities, but the, but NATO is not going to be part of guaranteeing the national identities. And conservatives at the time, or I should say William Sapphire at the time, uh, uh, columnist for the New York Times, uh, lambasted him, said this, his speech was, he called it Chicken Kiev, because he had he'd gone and given away the store. Um, on the other hand, it sort of made sense. It was sort of probably the right thing to say at that time. And then Clinton came along, and Clinton's idea was, well, let's just change that, uh, and we will start expanding NATO because Clinton's a liberal Democrat and kind of from a certain era where you keep thinking that international uh, uh, international systems, treaties yeah. and international treaty organizations are the greatest and you want to have more and more of them little, you know, <laughs> which is kind of how we got World War One, but whatever. Right. And then George W. Bush basically said, I'm not interested in Russia at all. But when he ran, he ran against nation building and towards China. So we've got to pivot towards Asia. That, of course, that all was thrown upside down, and we spent eight years uh, absolutely convinced, eight years, of some of which were spent, I think, on this podcast, or maybe right before it, talking about how the, the coming twilight struggle between the nation, the Islamic, Islamicist nations, and us. Um, this is an existential fight, which turns out it really wasn't existential, because now we're right back in 1939. 
And we're thinking, <laughs> we're, and we're talking about essentially the new czar and what the new czar is doing to expand his empire. Um, just kind of goes to show you that we just don't never. <laughs> Americans tend to look, look at everything in terms of, well, what happened during whose pres- presidential term? And that will tell you why. Right. But it really, right. this has, this is uh, the great strength of people like Putin and Xi, President Xi, I think, in China, is that it doesn't really matter to them who the president of the United States is. They have a strategy and they're going to execute it. Yeah, maybe not. Um, because I. <laughs> I, I, I think that these guys take the measure of who happens to be in control at the time and at the top and what their view of the world is. And that influence, I mean, yes, they have their plans, they have their strategies, Xi perhaps more than Putin. But I think that they are more inclined to push the advantage when they see a weakness on the other side, right? I mean, they may see, I mean, Putin may see American culture as decadent and filled with all sorts of uh, elite, effete nonsense that means it's ready to be pushed over. Um, And he probably thinks that whether or not it's Trump or whether or not it's Biden. But if he has somebody in office who is more likely to go um, his equivalent of the crazy Ivan than to back off and mouth the usual institutional post-nationalist pieties, I think he's going to take that into his calculation. I I disagree. I mean, if if we're talking about these two presidents, I, I disagree. I mean. There's no evidence. I mean, half of the Trumps, the, the, the people who support Trump today think that they, they side with Putin. The idea that Trump would have me look, 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 you play the cards you've got and the Some. cards are sanctions. Some. Um, well, but either way, like uh, Michael Flynn, his his. Uh, uh, What's he said? I have. I've missed while, that. Uh, well, you know, like he like he under he, he understands this issue right his way. So the idea that you look, look, every president has had a moment. I mean, look, if I had to rank them, I'd say the absolute worst, the nadir was Obama, right? But um, but Trump led him back in the G8. You know, mm-hmm. he was kicked out of the G8, became G7 again because of Crimea. Trump led mm-hmm. him back in. So like, also, like again, everyone's the, playing the strategy like, okay, I think he just wants this one little thing because we no, can't think no, of it in that's the big right. terms. That's and true. He doesn't that's want true. this one little thing. He wants... Right. So do you do do you go right? Rewind the clock. Restore the greatest. You know, re you know, avenge the greatest historical tragedy, the dissolution of the USSR, etc. But do you decide to press your advantage when the guy who comes into office cancels the pipeline, or the guy who comes into office and without getting anything whatsoever in return uh, lifts the sanctions and says, "Come on in." You know, maybe I. You know, every president gives him a gift. He got it. He wanted to make back in the G eight. And Trump let him back in. You know, he, everyone gets a gift that there's no pipeline yet. It was just a pr- like everybody wants to like make peace with this guy. That's about, which is completely normal. It's just that our obsession. I mean, I was flipping around the TV last night. Our obsession with American politics and American partisan politics makes us blind. So mm-hmm. it, there would be no time for um, the maps that I so desperately want for any of this stuff because they're too busy showing on CNN. They showed an endless clip of one of their CNN reporters ducking from fire. Like that's news. Like, I don't care. Show me a map. Where are you? Where, where is he coming in from? And they won't do it. They won't because they're too busy either telling you this emotional story or trying to turn it into some kind of domestic politics thing, which I think it's incredibly attractive and appealing to do that, but it <laughs> leads to zero understanding of what's happening. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the maps and the uh, stuff on the ground and the news that is not somebody cowering while there's firing going on and an emotional story of somebody in the subway, you can find on Reddit. You can find in Twitter. It's hard to find, but there yeah, are all kinds of plates. There's all kinds of references that I've bookmarked so I can see, give myself an idea what's happening. Because unlike seemingly previous wars where you did, as Peter said, where are the arrows? You, yeah. it, we, it's, it's, it's greatly indistinct. So, yes, um, we should probably post some of those on the Ricochet within this podcast and the link. Um, but I got to I got to mention something else, though, and that is yesterday was strange. I'm sure everybody had a day yesterday where they were just n- no attention span whatsoever. I just kept hitting the news, just kept hitting it. I would do something else. Then five minutes later, my hand would drift to my phone because I wanted to see something and it wears you out. And it reminds you that time to time, you got to take time to restore yourself. And one of the best ways, of course, you can do that. It's just turn it off and go to sleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you can look at all the things that make your daily life great, the food you eat, uh, the fact that you got good time in your car. I know I'm proud of that when, <laughs> when we have ice in Minnesota and I find myself slipping around. I'm glad I got those tires. But I mentioned sleep and sleep is important. That's why I've got a great pillow that I love to sink into. That's why I've got a great mattress that I love to sink into as well. But you know what? There's the thing between the mattress and you called the sheets, Right. And they matter. Few things matter more than a good night's rest. Bold and branch, signature sheets. They feel so soft and so light. You'll forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud. And they're sustainably made for uncompromising quality from field to factory. And as I say every week, and every week it becomes more true, the longer I have them, the better they are. Name any other product, especially one that's made of fabric that you actually interact with in rubber, but it's true. They just get softer over time. The Bolin Branch signature sheets come in seven beautiful colors, seven in all sizes, from twin up to California king. There's nothing worse than fitted sheets that don't fit, how they pop off at the corners and the rest of it. You can't figure out how to put them on. I do not have that problem with my Bolin Branch. Bolin Branch offers 17-inch deep fitted sheets and labeled sides to help you make your bed beautifully every time. You know what it's like trying to figure out which corner goes which? I remember those days, and I'm glad they don't happen anymore whenever I put the sheets on. Little things like that, they make a big difference. Bolin Branch focuses on quality over quantity. There's no inflated thread counts here because more is not always better. Oh, 9,000 thread. No, they're made to a higher standard, 100% organic cotton and ethical production and thoughtful attention to every detail. Best of all, Bolin Branch gives you a fair price, plus a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt at BolinBranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code Ricochet at the checkout. That's Bolin Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com, promo code Ricochet. And we thank Bolin Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. And now we welcome back to the podcast, Eli Lake, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering national security and foreign policy. Two things which seem to be somewhat relevant today. Journalism fellow at UT's Clement Center for National Security. And you can find his writing in the pages of Commentary, Tablet Magazine, and the Liberty's Journal of Culture and Politics. Uh, Eli, before uh, you came on, we were talking about the absence of maps. We want maps with arrows. We want to know what's going on. It's probably probably not going to age well if we discuss what's going on at this moment. But there was a general feeling after the first day, which is supposedly the day when everything goes well, because that's the day where you know where everything is, where all the other forces are. You know what you got to do. There was the feeling that the first day did not exactly go as Putin had planned. Is that just wishful thinking, graveyard whistling, or what? It's hard to say at this point, but we do know that at least the Ukrainian side has reported that in the second day of fighting, uh, 1,000 
Russian soldiers have been killed. Um, make of that what you will. Uh, I don't know. Um, and we also know that the Russians have taken over the Chernobyl nuclear plant, and there have been That's some... That's the one piece I'm happy to have them keep. Sure, but I mean, there have also reports that, you know, as a result of the fighting, or it's hard to say, I mean, I don't know, but there have been reports that have bubbled up, and it's hard to confirm at this point that there may be radiation leaking from uh. the Chernobyl plant at this point, and then we know that the Russian forces have surrounded, and, are, and I think there's now fighting inside of Ukraine. The former president, Peter Poroshenko, gave an interview in which he was holding a rifle in the street saying that all Ukrainians are going to fight. And I, and that, you know, that's certainly very inspiring. Hey, Eli Peter here. Here's yeah. what I can't find and why I'm just thrilled to have you with us. In the last 48 hours, I've been flipping around like a madman, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Twitter, anything. Just trying to find military analysis. So here's what as best I can figure out, is likely to be happening, but it's nothing but a layman supposition. I'll put it to mm -hmm. you, and you correct it. All right? So here's what's going on. Putin's got 140,000 troops, tanks, armored personnel carriers. That's actually not that many troops, considering the, the territory of Ukraine. So as best I can tell, the Russian idea is this. We achieve total air control, which they more or less have done. We show everybody that we've got rockets, attack helicopters. We can attack any point in that country they want to, and they've done bombing attacks as far west as Lviv, meaning we scare everybody to death really fast. But instead of trying to hold capture and hold ground, we're going to try to capture the government. What we really want to do is scare everybody to death and install a new government, not go into the difficult work of capturing and holding ground acre by acre by acre. Does that sound right? Is that what they must Well, I think that, that might be the Russian plan at this point, but it's a pipe dream in the sense that, I mean, the notion that there's going to be a... Uh, you can install a new puppet regime and that Ukrainians are going to accept it. There will have to be some measure of force, I think, to kind of keep the rest of the country from revolting. So, so the idea of a lightning attack just won't work. Is that correct? I mean, I listen, I mean, when the Soviets... Eli, make it up. You know more than no, no, I do. When, when I'll believe anything invaded, you say. <laughs> when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, they sent in the Spetsnaz, their special operators, to basically, you know, assassinate the afghan president they didn't like and install somebody and that did sort of work although they were saddled with a very costly occupation of afghanistan that was the equivalent of their vietnam war so they may be successful in putting in a puppet regime but that does not preclude the like you know the the, the grinding uh slog and quagmire that will be coming i mean the assumption is that and it's hard to say at this point whether Putin is so isolated that he has kind of lost his rational faculties. And this really is Hitler, believe, Hitler in the bunker time. Well, I mean, it, does he really believe that the two successive elected governments in Ukraine are occupation forces that most Ukrainians or Russian speakers actually would like to be part of Russia and would welcome this? 
does he believe that Russian forces will be, you know, greeted with pastries and flowers? Because um, he shouldn't believe that. There's nothing that would suggest that that's true based on everything that we have seen from the Ukrainian population. I mean, there have been some Ukrainian oligarchs that have fled the country, but, uh, you know, I have to say so far, I am impressed by Vladimir Zelensky's bravery. I'm impressed by the former president Poroshenko's bravery at this point. They're standing tall. And I think most Ukrainians have made it very clear that they don't want to be occupied by Russia. So even if they have a blitzkrieg lightning plan, it doesn't mean that it's going to work out that way. All right. One more question, if I may. And then I know Rob, I can, Rob and James want to get back in. And it's a question about, I guess it's a question about command structure might be the analytical term, but here's what I have in mind. Two groups of people, as best I can tell, have benefited hugely from the presidency of Vladimir Putin. One is the oligarchs, these disgusting people who've made billions of dollars and now have $200 million yachts bobbing around in the Mediterranean. And over the last 48 hours, life has gotten worse for them, not better. Their bank accounts are being monitored. Sanctions are being placed upon them personally. And their families. And their families. And the second group would be the military, because Vladimir Putin has lavished the military, in relative terms, lavished the military with money, material, equipment, training. And in the last 48 hours, the military chiefs have said, I think, something like, hey, wait a minute, this could get nasty. These people are going to stand and fight. They may not have air control. They can still kill a lot of our guys. So the people whom Putin has rewarded and who would be his principal backers who benefited disproportionately are now suddenly being punished disproportionately. Does this not create all kinds of problems in the governance of Russia, in Vladimir Putin's ability to get people to do what he tells them to do? Well, that is the hope. And at this point, nobody could tell you with any kind of certainty, but I would imagine, and I'm speaking in very broad terms here, I'm not giving you inside information, but the smart strategic move is to not just have the Treasury Department sanctioning the oligarchs and not to, and other senior Russian officials, but now to have the CIA come in and target as many of those oligarchs and say, awfully nice yacht you have here, maybe you'd like to keep it. But if you do, you got to start working with the good guys. And that can be depending on them. I mean, it, I don't know. I, by the way, the CIA and the FBI have tried this before, as I, just as a, an aside, but it's, I think it's an instructive story. One of the oligarchs that has been identified by the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Mueller team is Oleg Deripaska, somebody who has sort of taken a, the role in his as an aluminum baron also kind of doing these off-the-book dirty projects of trying to influence and sow divisiveness on behalf of the Kremlin. Um, and Divisiveness in this country or the West well, generally? Well, this country, but like also right. in small countries in Europe and things like that, that, that okay. Oleg Deripaska runs this with a kind of former GRU guy named Konstantin Kalimnik, who famously had these contacts with Paul Manafort. I'm not trying to get into the whole Russiagate stuff, but the point is that you know, in 2015, 2016, um, a former British spy named Christopher Steele and a senior Justice Department guy uh, named Bruce Orr had a plan to approach Deripaska and try to flip him. 
And they showed up at his home, I think, in New York, uh, or they sent FBI officials to do that. And this is so, so this is a constant, this is, this is something that the FBI and the CIA have been trying to do for some time. Having this renewed pressure, and particularly Boris Johnson, God bless him, in the middle of this political scandal, has really come out very strong, in my view. Um, having the Europeans kind of going after the Russian laundromat, as they call it, and going after these oligarchs, that may create opportunities to exploit those fissures. And once we get that, it's not just like having an intelligence operative to kind of be our eyes and ears inside the inner circle. It really then a lot of a lot of uh, devious kind of inside political warfare can be done because once you start getting the oligarchs to turn on Putin, that's the real way to sort of attack his power base at this point. I would as a as an old neocon, I would love it if uh, it was as simple as well, let's get the world behind Alexei Navalny. No, but he's in prison, right. and um, you know his party is now outlawed and it's considered a terrorist group, and. But but the way to really do it is you have to sort of work with, um, you know, you've got to find your Sammy the Bull Gravano right. uh, to, to, to turn on, on, on the Gambinos. If I can step on Rob for a second here. Bruce Orr, you mentioned Bruce Orr. It was a bit of a flashback. Now we know why Nellie Orr had the ham radio license because she was secretly communicating with the uh, oligarchs to flip them. I, I, you're right. I mean, sending one yacht to the bottom of the drink does tend to focus the minds of the rest of them. But isn't it, sort, isn't it a, a bit much to expect the oligarchs to be able to depose Putin when it, he's got the backing of the military? Isn't well, that really critically what it comes down to? The oligarchs can fume and fuss and say we're broke, but it's the military that counts. Well, yes and no, um, because the oligarchs have a lot of money that they can influence elements of the military, too, I'm sure. But the real question I think you're raising, which is the right one, is that until now, the rational calculus of any oligarch was anything that the CIA or the FBI can do for me, uh, Putin can do worse. So getting on the wrong side of Putin was far worse for one of these oligarchs than uh, being targeted in some ways by the West. And part of that was because they kind of, you know, that they were tolerated and they were allowed to kind of keep their money in these European capitals and send their kids to your, you know, European and American universities. So, um, in that respect, if you can try to change the calculus, I mean, I think that if you have grown accustomed to living an extravagantly wealthy life, and you like all these very expensive, nice things, and then somebody says, we're going to try to take them away, and maybe you don't have the wherewithal to kind of move all your shell corporations to Switzerland or some other place in time, that can focus the mind. That may, I I hope it shakes loose some of these folks, and that would be a very good thing. Um, But the, the key thing is that Putin has already proven that he is willing to take on oligarchs that get out of line. That's what Mikhail Khodorkovsky was all about. He actually sent somebody who was quite wealthy and powerful in Russia to, you know, a gulag. So that is, you know, that's what we're up against <laughs> yeah. in Russia. But at the same time, again, I think a lot of these people really like money. And uh, I don't think they're driven by an ideological fanaticism. I don't even think they're really driven by like a kind of Putin-esque uh you know nostalgia revanchism for you know the lost uh romanov empire i think that they just like being uh you know rich gangsters uh and if that that's that's a that's an easy calculus to try to do and and maybe maybe now the 
the the kind of the the the, the if the Western pressure gets greater, maybe then that will, as I said, shake loose some of that. Hey, Eli, thanks for joining us. Yeah. It's Rob Long in New York. Um, so whenever I'm faced with something like this, I ask myself like four questions, right? Um, mm-hmm. What does he, what does he think he's doing? What is he actually doing? Is he stupid, or is he really smart? And I just can't tell. So what he, what he's, what I think he, what I think he thinks he's doing, is um, taking back the the breakaway republic on the and the west side, the west the western part of the country, uh, making proving to the west that Kia, that Ukraine is a is a too high a price for them to pay to allow Ukraine to join NATO, right? Because NATO would be, if he, they, Ukraine joined NATO, it would be to protect, we, we would be sending troops there yesterday if there had been a treaty signed. But what I, but so, so that's what I think he's, I think he thinks he's doing. What he's really doing, ironically, is like kind of putting maybe a period against what was a de facto decision, a shrugging decision about Ukraine anyway, but galvanizing and unifying I mean, NATO's never been stronger. There are now more troops. We're sending troops to Germany. NATO is going to have more troops under its command by the end of the week. So I is think that, is that stupid, or is that just is he is he really smart? And I guess I I, I want to ask that question, but also these oligarchs and the military, everybody around him, what do they think he's doing? Well, I think that. Putin, who's now in, you know, starting his eighth decade of life, is thinking about his legacy and sees himself in this sort of long sweep of Russian history as evidenced by the speech that he gave on Monday. Um, So I think he believes that um, reconquering a former colonial possession of the Russian Empire is um, something that will cement his legacy. So I think that he's thinking in those terms and not in terms of sort of, you know, the practical considerations of somebody who has to sort of, you know, run his country. Um, Is he smart? Well, here's how I would look at it. Putin gambled in the following sense. He uh, was told from the outset that the United States would not be militarily defending Ukraine. Which we all knew. Yes. And it could, you could know, not have been a, a surprise to him. Yes. I mean, I think you can I think it's there's a fair argument on either side about whether it would have been smarter to be ambiguous about it. But it's not a threat that the in any way the the U.S. in this in 2022 could have possibly kept, which is, you know, it's just there's no political will to fight for the survival of Ukraine. But in that moment, remember, we're not sending troops, but if you do it, there will be the most devastating sanctions you've ever seen. That's what Biden kept saying over and over and over again, but didn't spell them out. So my kind of back of the envelope theory is that Putin was believed that Biden was also was, you know, it's interesting because Biden said we great powers can't bluff, which is why he, he took the military stuff off the table. But I think he thought he was bluffing in terms of the sanctions, because I think he was counting on the following one, he was counting on the fact that because Europe and particularly Germany is so dependent on Russian natural gas, that they could only go so far in terms of a sanctions regime, which, by the way, is so far true. So although far true. We, I was going to say we kind of back down on. Yes, uh, on energy the energy sanctions, sanctions and also SWIFT and, and also, also SWIFT. sanctioning 
Putin himself. Now it's possible these are in reserve if he does even worse things, but so that so he was counting, and he also was counting on the idea that whatever penalties were imposed, he would be able to ride it out. So the worst message that anyone could send was what Biden said yesterday, right. which is we'll see in thirty days. This has to be, I mean, the way to sort of make sure that Putin understands that he 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 gambled wrong, he placed the wrong bet, is to say is the, is to say your relationship with the free world and the most desirable part of the planet that people want to live in is changed forever. You, you are no longer going to be right. courted in, you know, these international fora. We are, we are going to take the steps now to truly separate our economies. Um, we uh, are no longer going, I mean, I would, I would, I would hope Biden would never do this, but a Republican president, not Trump, but somebody would should say, as long as, as Russia has a veto and is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, then the United States will no longer acknowledge that the UN Security Council is a font of international law and then establish a shadow. <laughs> we should have done that 30 years ago. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I agree <laughs> we should have done it 30 yeah. years ago, but now it's like become it, it's a, that it's a farce. Yeah. It's a farce. And the, the farce was so clear this week when you had the Ukrainian ambassador saying, you're sitting as the presiding country on the UN Security Council when you are the cause of, you know, the gravest violation we've seen in however many decades of the UN Charter. So, so in that, yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I'd say is like if we if we've given in on for now on tough, tougher energy sector sanctions and we've given in for now on SWIFT, which is the international banking system. If you don't have access to SWIFT, you can't wire money back and forth. Um, are, are, are those cards we're holding back saying if you behave, if you pull it, what, what, what are we waiting? What are we waiting for? Or is okay, it, so are, here, or are we blowing it? I guess what I'm saying let, let me, let me put it like this. Um, and this is going to sound odd because I'm usually kind of associated with a more hawkish or aggressive foreign policy. I would have much rather had Biden have a very somber speech with the country and saying, we are going to take steps now to make us resilient yeah. so that we can impose these kinds of measures. So, you know, Biden has to reverse a lot of his dumb policies that limit U.S. energy production and right. exploration. He has to come back 100% in support of the Israeli pipeline to Europe and try to really sell that as an alternative to Nord Stream 2. Yep. He has to figure out what are the implications of taking a really big, like Russia's not a huge economy, but like a much bigger country than Iran out of the SWIFT system? And what are we going to do with our banking system to make sure that it doesn't cause all these unintended consequences? So I don't think that the United States, and it's, it's this isn't partly Biden's fault, but it's it's really like the last, it's since Clinton. I mean, like, yeah. whenever you want to date it, you could say 2007, you could, I mean, I don't know, George W. Bush. I mean, like, someone should have been thinking ahead to say, all right, you know what, this bet that we had that we're going to like constrain Russia by enmeshing it in the international system has totally failed. So now we have to extricate Russia from the international system. And what do we need to do to prepare ourselves for that? So another example, there are rare earth minerals from both China and Russia that they have a you know, near monopoly on, but not entirely. So what we need to do is figure out other sources for those rare earth metals and start like a consortium with our allies to make sure that they will have that material to build cell phones, car batteries, and things like that. There's all kinds of stuff. And also, we need to you know, build up our defenses and make sure that our troops are more combat ready, just in case. All of those kinds of things are the preparations that are needed in order to 
impose these measures on Russia without also, you know, creating a kind of impossible situation for the United States. And that is that would have impressed me more right. than being vague for two months about crippling sanctions and then coming out. And I think that some of the sanctions are very serious, like the sovereign debt stuff and other things that, as I said, I, I really am praising the UK right now for going after the oligarchs. And I'm, mm. it's good that the United States, so some of it's good. But if you want to go further, we'd have to kind of prepare for that. And that's the part that's missing from Biden is that he has to understand the world's changed. This is, we have to understand it. Now we have to prepare ourselves to really separate from Russia. And there's no turning back. There, it, I, there should not be any more off-ramps for diplomacy with Russia. Right. He has made it really clear. He wants Kiev. He wants to take it over. And he will, you know, it's very possible that Russian forces will kill Vladimir Zelensky and his cabinet. That's a really serious thing. And there can't just be the usual, we condemn it, you know, the UN Security Council and, you know, Magnitsky sanctions or whatever. There has to be a fundamental break. And I think then both... Putin and the oligarchs who would like to spend all of their stolen money in the West will start really kind of having a maybe a come to Jesus moment, I hope. So um, it, it could is it a possible is it a possible American strategy to just let him do it and let him walk into the swamp, let him try well, to occupy a country and get I mean because we, we we are not sending troops there and we just so simply arm the the insurrection forces and and wait it out until he has to depart ignominiously in failure. I don't know if I would consider that to be much of a strategy. Only in the following sense: What did he say in his speech? I mean, he wasn't just talking about Ukraine. He he was yeah. talking about when Poland right. was a possession of <laughs> yeah, Europe yeah, and right. the Baltic the states. Baltic. So I think like he's putting it on the table. And, and what he also sort of vaguely threatened nuclear retaliation to any country that helped Ukraine. This is somebody who at this point is either rationally betting that the United States and the West doesn't have the will to stop him or has lost his mind and is no longer a rational actor. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I don't really trust anybody who would tell you one way or the other. No, great. But the, no. Yeah. So, so I say, like, I don't know. I don't think that really is a strategy at this point. We just have to treat him as, uh, you know, a dangerous, aggressive uh, actor on the world stage that needs to be thwarted. Great. So we got two old guys here, one of whom is sleepy and senescent, and the other who is perky and senescent. You mentioned before the needs to to work on the Israeli pipeline, which is absolutely completely right. We got to get the stuff from Leviathan into Europe. We got to get that in the market, bring the price down. But I can imagine telling Biden that he's got to change his attitude on that pipeline, because that's between that and Keystone and Nord Stream. That's like three pipelines the guys had to think about. And that's a lot of pipelines. He really needs to take his nap. And he does because he probably is at that age where he falls asleep very quickly. You might be different. Me, I have no trouble getting to sleep. My wife, different stories. Got a lot going on in our head sometimes, and it's hard to turn it all off. And you know, that can make for a bad day the next day. There's no underestimating the importance of a consistent nighttime routine. A better tomorrow always starts tonight. Do you know, poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, lower productivity. I'm not saying that's happened to my wife at all, period. doesn't, but it can. And sleeping less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count. <sighs> It makes it harder to protect your body against illnesses and diseases and fighting, you know, viruses. And like I say, I don't have a problem getting to sleep. 
But sometimes I remember in the past, I, you know, college, you got all these things spinning through your brain and the rest of it. And you know, the terror of just being awake and staring holes in the ceiling at three o'clock in the morning and knowing the next day is going to be bad. Yeah. Like that. We've all been there. Now, the one thing I did not have in college and wish I had was beam, beam, dream, Beam is the world's most innovative functional wellness brand with unique products for everything from sleep to recovery. Their Dream Powder, the best-selling healthy hot cocoa, contains the natural sleep-promoting premium ingredients that will help you get the rest you need. Here's why it works. Our bodies have an endocannabinoid system, or the highway of communication, if you will, between the brain and the body, which CBD is specifically designed to work with. 98% of people surveyed fall asleep faster when taking Beam Dream, and 99% of people feel better because they've experienced better sleep quality. Let me testify. My wife's been taking this stuff. She loves out like a light. Now, you too can find out why Beam's getting rave reviews from Forbes, the New York Times, its customers, my wife. Try Beam today. If you don't love it, you get your money back, guaranteed. For a limited time, get $20 off when you go to beamorganics.com slash ricochet and use the code ricochet at checkout. That's B-E-A-M-organics.com slash ricochet. Use code ricochet for $20 off. And we thank Beam for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. Trust me, you're going to love it. You're going to sleep. I, I, can I just ask one, one? I know Peter wants to jump in. I just have one more. Um, is he going to die in office? Like the, the way these things usually go, it's he goes, takes a long nap, right? Because it's just, he, he, he the price is too high. Uh, you mean Putin is going to die in office? Or? I mean, Putin. I mean, do, do, do you have the idea? No. I mean, I, I guess what I'm just thinking about it in terms of gangsterism, that when the mob boss just kind of loses it and makes everyone pay a very high price, right? he goes to bed, he doesn't wake up. Wow. Well, that's an interesting scenario. And uh, I just, I don't want to like venture out because I don't know, you know, will you're saying like, will will there be some figure that will kill him or something like that? Yeah. You know, right. it's, it's been known to happen in Russia. Sure. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're, that the presumption wasn't like, well, you know, if, if you look at the early vote returns coming out of, you know, <laughs> like St. Petersburg, it looks like, you know, there's a new, like, that's not going to happen. Yeah, know we know that. Happen. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, listen, I, I, I don't want to get, take, don't take this out of context, but the hope is, is that, you know, put enough pressure on the, on the, on the, on the oligarchs around him that make his rule possible. And, uh, they either persuade him to pull back or they persuade him to take that long nap. And that is a fair kind of strategy. It's, it's fraught though with risk. And it's, I mean, who knows if it'll be successful, the, the bottom line is that it, we have a huge disadvantage in this regard because we are not the monsters that the hard left and now, unfortunately, the national conservative right sort of imagines about. America is not what Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn says. We are not as cruel. We are more civilized than a thug like Putin. So Putin can do far worse to you yeah. than we can. And that's been a huge imbalance. It's one of the reasons why the KGB was more successful in just the spy wars than the CIA, because even though the CIA did a lot of dirty stuff, it was not nearly as horrible as the KGB. And that's sort of the lesson now. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of of the view now that it's time for the gloves to really come off on that side of things and to try to sort of foment something like that if we can. So Eli, you've been talking about what we should do. Let me ask briefly about Europe. Sure. So the hope expressed here and there 
on our side, broadly speaking, conservatives, is that if any good comes of this, it will chasten the Europeans, make them recognize that they do actually have to do what Donald Trump and others, Irving Kristol wrote columns about this back in the 90s, step up, defend themselves. In the short term, that means chipping in more to NATO. Okay. So on the one hand, to a contrast here, on the one hand, we have Boris Johnson imposing pretty stiff sanctions. And that is, as best I can tell, a, a, a brief, we'll see how he pursues it, but a brief political, real profile and courage. He's a former mayor of London. He knows in detail what I've heard loosely over and over again over the years, that some double-digit percentage of the money that supports business in the city of London is Russian. Right. He's talking about shutting down a big piece of the city of London's business. That takes guts, and he's done it. On the other hand, we have in Germany, well, let's just put it this way, Stalin's great dream was a neutral Germany, and he never affected it. Vladimir Putin has... Tell me I'm both. I'm wrong, I hope. Go ahead. On the German question, I would hope the priority for all of Germany's allies would be for them to reverse their ridiculous decision 10 years ago to cut off of nuclear power. Nuclear power is the way for Germany to become more energy independent, and that has to be the as much as for right now, Dayenu, if they just do that, because I don't expect the Germans given their history. And I also don't want the Germans given their history to rediscover a kind of national militaristic pride. Mm-hmm. So uniforms, like, leather, how <laughs> lovely after all. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is that like, I, I kind of understand why the Germans are, you know, so, willing to kind of buy into this idea that all of our problems can be solved, you know, if we, if we just meet at a five-star hotel in Vienna or Geneva or something. And, but the rest of Europe and the, and the United States and the U S state department, and frankly, the democratic party and, you know, anyone left in the Republican party, we have to give up on this, that there, that, that the idea that all of our, that any kind of geopolitical problem with a rogue state like Russia can be solved by, by finding the right diplomatic formula, well, that's, that's been discredited. This was a hope in the 1990s that, you know, we were at the end of history, and the best thing we can do is just trade with China and Russia, and eventually they'll come around and be more like us. That did not happen. Uh, we should just stop thinking that it should happen and stop repeating that mistake. And that that way, and and limit the, and I, I think the Germans are kind of always going to be that way. But we can we can probably maybe get the French and certainly the British, and other certainly all of Eastern Europe now is kind of in agreement with us, you know, the conservative Americans on this, and, and you know, kind of work there. But if we can just get the Germans to be energy independent, I mean, that will go a long way. And also take the corruption in their own system more seriously. The very fact that the former chancellor. Gerhard Schroeder is like the CEO of the pipeline project from with Russia at this point is breathtaking. It's a disgrace. And yet he's still a kind of a member of polite society and his own party, you know, kind of still, you know, kind of treats him like an old, I mean, that was a, that was a huge blow and we should have been much more attuned to it. So it's like, if, 
that, so that kind of thing, I think we can hope for. I don't think we're ever going to get a Germany that's going to be kind of a meaningful military nor, partner. Nor should we want one, is what you're and, saying. Exactly, nor should we want one. But yeah. we can we can certainly ask for that from other European countries, and is I this, hope that this is a wake-up call. S- yeah. Sort of a sub-question, then I really uh, am done. We, you've got a life to lead. I don't want to keep you forever. I don't know. It's a lot I just, of fun. This, this, can we hope, can we, can we suppose that turning their backs on energy technology was so deeply un-German that they'll, they'll sort of awaken from this weird dream of their own accord. I mean, the idea that the French, that Macron, the French are going to be building a dozen new nuclear plants over the next decade or some number like that. And we in Germany, oh no, we will make do with windmills. It's ridiculous and it's un-German somehow to turn their back on technology. I mean, the the reason they made Am I missing something even deeper? No, no, this was after Fukushima, remember? Right. And it played into, I think, like something very deep, particularly in the German left, that it's like they associate nuclear power with nuclear weapons and they, you know, somehow this is still tied to war guilt. Yeah. Well, I kind of, I mean, I'm not an expert on Germany, but I've talked to some and, you know, just because I've been curious about this in the last month, like what's wrong with the Germans and everything like that. And the answer is that, you know, they saw Fukushima and it played into sort of, there was a receptive part of their politics, particularly in the green party that was really open to this. Like this is an environmental disaster. And I just think that at a certain point, like that, that sort of won the day. And then that's what led them to embrace the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and figuring out this kind of alternative. And it's it's a little bit like the US Greens that tell us we've yeah. got to get off fossil fuel without like telling us what's going to replace fossil fuel and how we're going to get from A to B. Um, and we just have to say to them, like, All right, you got to reverse this at this point. And I there's a clever, by the way, political way that we can do this. Like just simply saying, like, you know, let's let's just drill, baby, drill. There's got to be a way to kind of persuade sensible liberals, you know, the kind of liberals who voted against the San Francisco score member that, you know, we're not we're not we're not saying that your entire climate change agenda is is a fantasy. We're not we're not arguing about that. But like, can you understand that there are real geopolitical consequences to hindering American energy production at this point and um that at least for the time being that russia really poses this major natural security threat i know you agree with us on that i think there's there's got to be a kind of way that we should be thinking about ways to kind of bring people together on these issues instead of using it as like a wedge that like if you elect a republican then you're gonna you're gonna finally get like these important steps that we need to take you know to isolate from russia you know i'm just my hope is that there's a way to kind of persuade a lot of democrats of this as well my fear is that a year from now, we will see a New York Times headline that says, a year after the invasion, a wary Europe seeks rapprochement with Russia. No, that, I'm that, that, very that, worried about that, too. That they'll yeah. swallow it and that they'll crawl back because there are things that they need. That's my fear, and it seems most likely, and it may be what Putin is counting on. But there's also the possibility, which is probably less likely, but also possible. This served as a slap in the face, a wake-up call that, that put the that opened people's eyes to the myriad innumerable delusions that they've been coasting on, on this cloud of transnational end of history goodwill, as you said, meeting in a hotel in Vienna and having a good lunch and signing some papers, that that actually is a fiction. 
and that Putin ripped through it, and and it exposes all of the fictions of the end of, of the you know the the end of nationalism, the end of nation states, the the end of the, the the follies of the green policies. Because I mean, good luck convincing some people in California that they should put that green dream on green dream on hold for a while because they believe it's right around the corner. If we just spend enough money and make enough uh, you know solar panels and the rest of it, we can get there. We can get there. The only quite the only thing that's stopping us, uh, you know, is is the oil lobbyists and the uh, subsidies that we give to the petroleum industry. I mean, it's possible though to change their minds and so when you look at the intellectual and the diplomatic political apparatus of europe and the people how do you think the people's reaction to this will affect the politics of europe going forward is it are are we seeing perhaps a a, a glimmer of reality start to influence policies more than they have before okay so first off i i my hope is that european voters will fully turn against Putin and hold uh, their leaders and elites accountable. But another force that has historically held the Europeans in check, because they've always been like this, has been the American president and, and, and American diplomacy. And so we also, uh, so Joe Biden is going to, for the next three years, be part of this equation, or maybe more if he wins re-election. But the, the idea is that before this crisis, Joe Biden believed that uniting Europe with America and repairing what he believes the damage that Trump did was basically, you know, acceding to the demands of outgoing Chancellor Angela Merkel with Nord Stream 2 and to be more reasonable and to, you know, kind of bend American policy towards this, you know, fuzzy European consensus of, you know, forever engagement. Instead, what we hope I'm hoping that Biden will be, and again, I'm, there's a difference between hoping and, and, and thinking he will actually do it, is that in that period running up to that New York Times headline in a year, that Biden says, absolutely not. We are the, we, you know, we are providing your security and uh, we can never let, you know, Putin uh, off the hook for this. And that, um, and so there, there's another factor. So I, I'd hope the, your, I hope the, Germans and French and Spaniards and, you know, British become, you know, begin to hold want more from their leaders in this regard. But on the other side of it, I also want the American president to hold the line in the way that kind of Reagan had to do um, in his uh, first term, um, in the way that, you know, it's, you know, in his best moments, George W. Bush did. And and that's that's what I'm hoping for. Well, Eli, we spoke to you after the Afghan disaster. I've spoken to you now after the Ukraine disaster. Don't take this personally, but I invite me back when China invades Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) don't take it wrong. We're starting to think you're just plain bad luck. Yeah. Yeah. So if we, you know, if we we can look back in a year and say we didn't have to have Eli on once again, it'll be great. But uh, we enjoy (laughs) having (laughs) you. Every fire insurance. Every time that you're here, Eli Lake. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Eli. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. Rob, you, um, as a matter of fact, now have to step up to the rostrum. I do, yeah. and, uh, and 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 tell people in these difficult times where we're being told that you know five dollar gas is the price that we're going to have to pay to stand up for our values, as Pisaki said, that they should actually take the crowbar to their wallet and uh, and liberate a few dollars and do what with it exactly? I would like people who are sort of I mean, first of all, it's sort of fascinating to talk to somebody like Eli who kind of knows 
the whole sort of 300, almost 360 degree view of the, of things. It's like a, I mean, I kind of felt like we should have had him on first and then we should have talked, but okay. <laughs> that, that is not the way oh, we but go then, here. But then, but then we wouldn't have first the, us, we, then, then somebody we, who knows what he's talking about. We yeah, wouldn't yeah. have the pleasure of hearing ourselves bloviate with utter confidence. Oh, no, no, I think, right, I think right. we made some excellent points, James, I got to say, in, in defense of us. Um, but we are coming to you from the Ricochet Audio Network, which is part of ricochet.com. And we would like you to join Ricochet not just to help us keep the business open and keep the windows uh, lights on, et cetera, et cetera, but also because we want to hear your voice. Ricochet is a conservative conversation site that we keep our conversations civil and polite, and we actually end up having really, really good exchanges with each other, not just about politics, but about everything. Um, and this is a place, uh, Ricochet, we have actually taken steps. I mean, it's hard to believe. It's slightly expensive steps, but steps nonetheless to safeguard ricochet as a place that the big uh tech uh, uh folks cannot they cannot pull our plug um and that is something we would like you to if you want to vote for a really really free conversation um please join ricochet they cannot pull our plug we made sure of that and it cost us some money and we would love to have you join and be a member of the club with us we are the internet's refuge for people who want to engage in civil political dialogue and to avoid the global troll invasion and it's not just your politics we're interested in what's your area of expertise your profession your favorite hobby your experiences in life these are the things that we find fascinating these are the things that knit us together these are the things that you talk about if you're just a little bit exhausted by talking about politics if you want to share it, we want to hear it. And there's never been a better time to join with our limited time winter membership drive. It's right now. You can start in on the action with 14 days free of charge. That's 14 days. Look, join, look around, kick the tires, start a conversation, join a conversation. The reason we're doing this is we know that if you join, you're going to want to stay. Um, couple of uh, three things happening for members uh, the next week or so. Uh, we do every night. I don't know if I, I think Peter's going to do it. Uh, I did it last week. Uh, uh, Nightcap with John uh, Gabriel, who's our editor in chief. Um, it's, it's fantastic. He hosts a freewheeling nightly wrap up of the news of the day, Mondays through Thursdays, 7 p.m. ET, so 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, on the call-in app, C-A-L-L-I-N. You just have to download the app and you can join. It's, it's loads of fun. It's really great. It's like, kind of like old-style um, talk radio. Uh, and Gabriel's just fantastic. Um, and to fit that show's title, we are launching right now a competition for the best nightcap cocktail recipe. So uh, oh. members are going to share their favorite nightcap, both alcoholic and booze-free, if you're if you're if you tend to that, um, the winners in both categories will be announced on the on Wednesday, March 16, on the episode of the Nightcap by special guest Peter Robinson and call-in CEO David Sachs. David, you might remember, he's been a, uh, a guest on the podcast. Um, uh, fascinating guy. Uh, uh, if you don't, don't follow him on Twitter, find him, David Sachs, S-A-C-K-S. He's writing really, 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 really uh, smart, insightful, insightful stuff about California and politics and COVID. Uh, so, look, uh, pitch us your best nightcap recipe. The winners will receive a set of cocktail glasses with the nightcap logo, you know, how can you say no? So join Ricochet and, uh, <laughs> and instantly uh, tell us what you're drinking. Again, this is a members-only event. We have a lot of these. We're going to have even more of them. We really feel strongly that we need to sort of – everyone needs to get back to normal. Uh, and so it's a members-only event. Make sure you sign up today at ricochet.com slash join. You know, getting back to normal, one of the things that I noticed in the last few days was how – 
Yeah, we, we used to ask ourselves, when will it finally be that we're just not saturated in COVID news all the time? Well, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, this was it. This was the, uh, you know, COVID all of a sudden is joining the Chandra Levy, Gary Condit uh, realm of things yeah. that are suddenly <laughs> instantly just poof. Gone. I saw somebody who did tweet out. They were looking at a picture of people, Ukrainians in the subway taking refuge. And they said, you know, Ukrainian vaccination rate is only 30 percent for all those people to be packed into that space. And they're not wearing masks. Wow. <laughs> I know and, that is like and, and, and I thought it, it, it was like it, it was like hearing that Madonna has come out with a new single and wants to be relevant again. It was just pathetic. Yeah. It's like, I'm sorry, we're not going to do that here. We're not going to apply you. you, you it's done. It's, it's gone. It's over. All of a sudden, something else has come along. I mean, it just so, yes. The people who, um, who whose lives were given great meaning by COVID seem frustrated at this point because people are actually transfixed by something else of uh, great importance or not great importance. Like, there are plenty of people something who actually are just real. shrugging yeah. their right. shoulders and saying it doesn't apply to us at all. Why do I care? Why should I care? And, you know, I, I I did. Can I just say I just am realizing that I did forget to say uh-huh. that uh, for Ricochet Winter Membership Pledge Drive, we have free membership for college students. So if you have a .edu uh, web um, email, come and join. We want to hear your voice, too. And also, we're going to do more in-person events. I sort of said that, but I didn't really. We're going to do have an event in New York and D.C. Uh, and so because we want. like This is only over this the COVID thing when we declare it over. And so we're declaring it over. Sorry, sorry, I had just realized I didn't say that part. That was an important part. Well, we're glad that you did. And Peter, anything, <laughs> so anything you, you would like? To, anything that you would like <laughs> to add to uh, to Brother Rob's remarks? You being one of the, uh, the others, or is there some no, piece of news? Actually, or is there a piece of news that we haven't talked about that you want to surface? I'd, I'd like to add to your remarks. It's not just COVID that we've forgotten about, at least for the time being. Or at least it's not just Dr. Fauci who's feeling frustrated right now. Our former Secretary of State and current climate czar, John Kerry, yes. gave a an unbelievably surreal interview mm-hmm. earlier in the week in which he complained that the worst aspect of the Russian invasion mm-hmm. of a sovereign nation was that it would distract from the fight against climate change. <laughs> Uh, unbelievable as though as if if only the armored troop carriers were all electric vehicles it would right. be fine mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. right well if i mean if your if your ultimate goal is bending the entire economies of the world and everybody to a particular standard and means of production and controlling the output so that the world will not heat up by a degree and a half again yes that is going to be the dominant thing. But like I was saying to Eli, and like I'm hoping, a lot of these things we've had the luxury to endure. And I sound like Peter Robbins there, uh, my emphasis with that word. The luxury uh, seemed exactly like that. No. I mean, it was nice to sort of float along and feel as if there, as if we could really concentrate on these things and debate gender ideology and, uh, and intersectionality and the rest of it. But they all seem like the smallest of, of, of consider. They're revealed as such, perhaps to those who didn't see them as such before. They've always seemed to me to be ridiculous diversions for a great society to, to, to concern itself with, to tear itself apart over. So, yeah, I mean, the more we, the more we, look at this and great games and geopolitical strategy and revanchist Russia, the more people are going to be frustrated that we're not talking about the important things, which is why it's necessary to sever J.K. Rowling from her creation so that people can read Harry <laughs> Potter without feeling bad. 
I, I, I mean, true. yeah, true. As, as somebody else on Twitter said, well, I guess this is the apogee of the weak men breed bad times point in the phase of history. And I thought that's an interesting way of looking mm. at it as the cycle goes, because the hard times come and then those hard times breed strong people and societies. It's almost as if history seems to roll in cycles dependent on the un- immutable nature of human beings. Almost. Mm. Yeah, who aren't who aren't terrific, by the way. That's our problem. Of this great of the crooked t- timber, right? But we, uh, but yes, we're not. But we've got substantial accomplishments. We do marvelous things. Are we done? I think we are. <laughs> yeah. Let's get out. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors, Bold and Branch and Beam, and of course, Ricochet itself. Support them. Your life will be better because of it. I know we've talked a lot ad-wise about sleeping, but sleep is important. Don't stay up. Don't spin. Go to Ricochet and find a place where you can unburden yourself of the things that have been clattering around your mind. It's been great fun, and we'd like a five-star review for it. Thank you very much. And that's it. Rob, Peter, we'll see everybody in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Next week. Next week, fellas. Ricochet. Join the conversation.